Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and I have a returning guest with me here today. It's Scott. Say hi, Scott. Hi, Scott. Scott, you're back. Thanks for coming back. I'm excited. I know. Like James Bond, I will always return. Just the way it is. (laughs) Yes, I like it. Well, um, what what movie are we discussing today? We are discussing the 2006 reboot of the James Bond franchise, Casino Royale. Oh, I love this movie. Me too. I'm so glad you picked this. I, It's one of those movies that, you know, some days I just, I'm in a mood and I'm like, let's go home and watch James Bond and let's watch this movie specifically. So oh, we own that, it. Good, good I have, choice. I have it on Blu-ray. I've got all the, you know, special features. I was able to watch those. I, I like the episodes where I own the movie because then I can watch all the special features too, you know, instead of having to like look them up on YouTube and hoping they're there. So, <laughs> well, let me ask you: Do you have the, do you have that two disc collector's edition Blu-ray of Casino Royale? I don't think so. I think it's just like the regular. Oh, um, yeah. There's a two disc version that if you are a if you are a special features nut, mm-hmm. like this was the version to get. Like, okay. e- like even when I upgraded my Bond collection to Blu-ray and got like the 50th anniversary box set. Mm-hmm. I didn't get rid of this, like, oh. because it, it the only release that had all these different special features was this one Blu-ray release, and it's like, no, I will get rid of everything else. I'll have this nice box set, but I'm holding on to this one release of the Blu-ray because it has <laughs> stuff that never gets repeated anywhere else. Wow. Okay, I'm gonna have to check that out. I I do like following all your collecting. <laughs> like when it you just post never about stops, it on Twitter and talk about, yeah, <laughs> you have every steel book ever made, at least of DC stuff. Uh, that is true. Yeah, yeah. that's true. So I think it's kind of funny too that uh, you know the first episode that you were on here, we talked about Batman: Mask of the Phantasm, and you said the uh, we were talking about the only thing that you're a bigger fan of than Batman is Bond. Is that is that what you said? Is that right? Or if there's anything that approaches, yeah, approaches. okay. My my Batman fandom is James Bond and it depends on the day. I <laughs> I I have been a James Bond fan almost as long as I've been a Batman fan and the geekdom runs deep in me when it comes to this franchise. And uh, I mean there's a lot of crossover there. I mean do you do you agree with that? Like be- there's similarities between Batman and Bond, like a lot of them, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you've got gadgets, you've got some awesome cars and you've got that sort of anti-hero-ness, especially in in Daniel Craig's portrayal of Bond Mm -hmm. where they're doing the right thing, but maybe they're not going about it the quote right way. 
there's a certain aspect of the I'm going to do whatever is necessary to get the job done that is intensely satisfying to watch, especially, you know, when you're in that great middle school boy age when pretty much everyone discovers James Bond. It's like, you know, and then, of course, add on the beautiful women that also happen to be in the movie Mm -hmm. every time. And, you know, (laughs) it's it coincidentally and it's just tailor made. Right, right. I mean, I think I think James Bond and Batman are both pretty big, like, perfect male fantasies, right? Because, I mean, you know, you're... I mean, he's... I guess James Bond isn't rich, but he's living a rich lifestyle. But they also, at least with Daniel Craig's portrayal, they kind of add in that whole, like, but I don't like it. But you're kind of like, don't you, though? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of like with Bruce, right? Like, he's rich, but he's like... But he's Batman and that's more important. But come on, a part of you watches it and you're like, I wish I had that big mansion and that car and all that money. Like, it's it's a fantasy. Um, but it's done in a way where it's also very interesting. And the character is, like you said, an anti-hero. And it's just kind of like all those little pieces are, are just in the right place, I think. So let's see. Where, where should we start? Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about... Uh, I guess you kind of have already. Do you want to talk a little bit about like your James Bond fandom? Where it started, you know, where you fall, like who's your favorite Bond, all that good stuff. Oh, oh, so many deep questions. So many deep questions. (laughs) Uh, Questions you couldn't wait to be asked. (laughs) Um, Of course. Um, Definitely it was that middle school age, you know, 10, 11 years old, Mm -hmm. you know, catching – ABC would show like Sunday night movies and they'd almost always show a Bond movie every once in a while. My dad was a fan. So as a lot of movie experiences go in my life, it was father son stuff. It it, it was stuff that my dad would sit down and watch with me. And and my dad would tell me stuff because he grew up kind of watching the movies too. And he'd tell me stories about him seeing the movies and then every car. I mean, my dad is a car nut. So, I mean, you watch a car, he'll tell you the year, the make the model what engines under the hood so mm-hmm. going to watch a bond movie with my dad is like an education <laughs> and it's fantastic so you know and i grew up and then they started re-releasing the movies on vhs yes i'm dating myself again and <laughs> i think almost every guest i have on here is like remember vhs <laughs> yeah and so and back in those days it was just kind of picking and choosing like i knew my i knew the movies that were my favorites so mm-hmm. i would just you know you know, when they were 15, bu- 15 bucks a pop, you know, you, you, you know, you, you picked the ones you could. And sure. so you just got the ones you really liked. And so, you know, I had my Conneries, I had the Moors that I liked, you know, and then I was right there, you know, Goldeneye with Pierce Brosnan was the first Bond movie I actually got to see in the theater. And so that was a big moment for me. It was like, oh, finally not watching it on my TV. Yeah. But. I would say before Daniel Craig happened, Connery was easily my favorite Bond. And as a kid, my favorite movie was Goldfinger, Mm -hmm. which is really funny because you go back and watch that movie and you realize that all the tropes and cliches and formulas that we think that a James Bond movie is, quote, supposed to have, it all started with Goldfinger. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, I agree. And so that's just, you know, but as I got older, my opinions changed. And then right before Casino Royale came out in theaters, I went and started a marathon and read every Ian Fleming novel 
from start to finish in chronological order. And wow. so when I saw Daniel Craig's performance in Casino Royale, I, you know, some people had a problem with his portrayal because it wasn't the suave, classy Bond like Connery would do. But Daniel Craig nails the way Fleming wrote Bond's character. What mm -hmm. you said earlier about I'm going to do this, but I don't like it. That is completely the way Fleming writes Bond in the books. Very self-loathing. He knows what he is. He's basically just a gun for hire for the government. And he kind of deplores what he does, but likes what he does all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, for me, this betrayal is what crossed me over into being a fan. Because, I mean, I grew up, you know, being aware of Bond and seeing the movies. I saw Goldeneye. I don't know if I saw it in the theater but I know that I saw it and we had it. I think we owned it. Um, but I, I, I didn't really understand the appeal as much because I guess it wasn't really tailored to me. You know, like my role in that universe is being, you know, the Bond girl or something. It didn't sound very appealing to me. Like I get I got why guys liked it. But <laughs> I didn't really. It was yeah. like, where does where do I fit in that universe? Nowhere. So like, I, I think. You know, Daniel Craig's portrayal, it really, it, it was a game changer because he was approaching it from such a different place. And I also felt like it was a little more, just my opinion, realistic. You know, I think that if he were to be a spy that's taking people out, I mean, this movie made you feel like Daniel Craig could really do that. And so it was just a more serious tone. There was a lot of depth to the character. The Bond yeah. girl is deeper and different. And, you know, just everything about it was just more appealing to me like you know I, I guess for me like w when you compare it again to to batman batman always has that self-loathing tortured angry you know you can really i guess he's more human um but then with bond at least like the pierce brosnan portrayal it's like i just never felt like there was anything there um and then with this movie it just made it go deeper but the other interesting part of that is once i went there, I guess, it made me want to go back and see all the other Bonds. You know, like, it made me go, oh, okay, I'm I'm seeing now what it is you're seeing when you see these movies, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it was also in the mid-2000s, and we were in the we were in the midst of gritty reboots, you know. Yes. Because, <laughs> you know, the <laughs> year before true. Batman Begins had just come out. Mm -hmm. And so we Hollywood was going through a phase of the – uh, gritty, realistic reboots, which in the case of Casino Royale was perfect because you actually gave us a Bond like the source material and doing something that had never been done before, which was adapting the first novel. So it was perfect. You want to reboot. You want to start continuity all over again with James Bond with the, you know, with the uh, small exception of that we kept Judy Dench's M because mm -hmm. it's Judy Dench. Right. And uh, <laughs> and then. But you then do a reboot, but with the very first James Bond novel ever written, and it just seemed like a perfect place to start. Right. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I don't want to come off at all as, like, a Bond hater. I wasn't. I just, I didn't have a connection to it before this one, I think. And I'm going to say something. I think it's crazy that this movie came out in 2006. I did not realize that. Like, in my head, it was, like, fairly recently. <laughs> and then oh. when I was, like, reading about it and watching it again, I was like, oh, wow, this was, uh, this was like, 11 years ago. <laughs> I didn't, yeah. I, time flies. I didn't realize that. 
Oh, yeah. I, I still remember going to see this movie for the first time, and it was a big deal for me because as a Bond fan, we were all trying to wash the sour taste of Die Another Day out of our mouths. Yuck, yes. I saw that yeah. in theaters, too. Yeah, that was that was a James Bond movie that I even left the theater. And, and really? I'm, such, I'm <laughs> such a Pollyanna. I mean, listen to me on my show. I, I am the I'm, I have enthusiasm to spare. So it's very rare that I walk out of a movie going. Yeah, that was a movie. And that is how I felt about Die Another Day. And it hurt me because it was a Bond movie and it was an anniversary year. And it was it was like the 20th Bond movie. And it just did not land at no, all. Even the song was awful. <sighs> don't don't <laughs> get me don't get me started on that. Don't get me started on that. Oh my so, gosh. Just because yeah. Well, uh, sometimes like to torture Nick, I'll I'll sing Die Another Day. Like if if it if it comes up at all, I'll start singing it to him and he's like, "No, no." <laughs> oh, there's so many better ones to pick. I know. He's like that's that he's like that shouldn't have been a Bond song, you know. It's like everyone everyone felt that way. It was terrible. Oh yeah. He's, he's so, looking at me right now. He just <laughs> he shot me in mean look. <laughs> Good. You deserve it. Yeah, I know. I know. It's torture. But so I will tell you that the hype was real for me building up to this movie. Like they were adapting the first novel. It was going to be a complete reboot. It was going to be like an origin story. And so that's like I said, I, I bought all the books. I started reading them. Uh, I I have I have so many stories. I almost feel like you're gonna have to cut me off about the <laughs> the hype train that was leading up to this movie. I remember the Monday before you know because CDs get released on Tuesdays. Mm -hmm. I remember the Monday I went to a a uh, record store to buy the to just look at the CD and they only had like two of them. And one guy said, "Okay, we totally sold this to another guy." So even though we shouldn't sell it to tomorrow, here, we'll go ahead and sell it to you tonight. And so, like, I walked out of the store on Monday night with the CD, listened <laughs> to it. It's, like, one of my favorite Bond scores. Yeah. So it's, with it's the music by one. David Arnold. Oh, it's so good. So that was playing. And then what happened was the Thursday before the movie came out, my best friend from college, the guy who was, like, my second best man at my wedding – uh, is a huge Bond fan. Has a Sean Connery autographed poster. Like oh, just wow. that's that's the depth of this man's love for Bond. Uh, he was living in. I live in Birmingham. He was living in Nashville at the time, and he called me at work. I was working at a bookstore, and he said, "Hey, there's a midnight showing of Casino Royale tonight. Do you want to come see it?" Well, this is 2006. I'm still single. I have a job that I don't have to show up till like four o'clock the next day. So I leave my job at six. I actually picked up a copy of the audiobook of Casino Royale because I just wanted to listen. I wanted to read it again to get ready for the movie. And I drove from Birmingham to Nashville. Oh my God. Just <laughs> to see a midnight showing of this movie with my best friend. And then drove back to Birmingham that same night after the movie. And this what? is like a two and a half hour movie. So yeah, it was like three short. in the morning. It was like three in the morning uh, on my way. And, and I'm on, you know, I-65 on my way from Nashville back to Birmingham. The hype was real for this film. That is the craziest. I think that's like the craziest story anyone's told about going to see a movie. <laughs> but I will say that, uh, you know, what, what would have happened if it was awful? Wouldn't that have been... 
That would have been like really devastating. I, you know what? It could, (laughs) it it just, it wasn't allowed to be awful. Like it just just couldn't be, but you know, I was also going to go see it with that friend of mine. So it it made it, it made it even more of of an event because otherwise I was just going to go see the movie by myself, but there was no midnight showings in Birmingham. And so I just, because I was fun and fancy free, I was like, sure, I'll jump in my car and drive, you know, two hours to go see a movie. Yeah. And um and thankfully I loved the movie and everything about it and listening to the Ian Fleming novel on the way up was just like jazz. Another thing is I also took a Playboy guide to casino gaming with me because <laughs> I had been told ahead of time it was in the, it was in all the marketing material that they were replacing Baccarat with Texas Hold'em. Yeah, and yeah. I didn't know how to play Texas Hold'em. So I knew, based on the book, how much the gambling was going to be a major part of the plot. So I took this Playboy bargain book that I bought at the bookstore I worked at so that as I was waiting for the movie to, to you know, first to leave for the movie, I read all the rules to Texas Hold'em so I oh could, my gosh. <laughs> so I could understand the movie. And thank God, because Texas Hold'em does play a giant part. And if I didn't know how that game worked, I would have been lost for half this movie. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong, because I, I don't know how to play it, and I am kind of lost when they're talking about it. So, good point. <laughs> I, I know, I, I can't remember. I mean, I know I saw this movie in theaters. I don't have, like, strong memories of seeing this one in theaters, but I know that I did, and I know that I liked it. Oh, I just felt like it saved the Bond franchise it and I was so yeah. and I was so thankful. Yes, it's awesome. Well, um let me go over the summary real quick. Hopefully you won't have to swoop in and save me this time. <laughs> <laughs> I picked a better one. I am going to credit the person this time because I think like I I pulled it off of IMDb. I think this one's better, but you can tell me if it's not, we can read another one. Does that sound fair? Okay. (laughs) That sounds fair. Hit hit me with a summary. Okay, okay. All right, so this is the summary for Casino Royale. Uh, Recently promoted to 00 status, James Bond takes over his first mission, in which he faces a mysterious private banker to world terrorism and poker player. Oh, man, I'm going to have a problem here. Le Chiffre? Le Chiffre? Le Chiffre. Le Chiffre, okay. Along with the beautiful treasury agent and the MI6 man in Montenegro. Bond takes part in a high-stakes poker game set up by, you say it, Le Chiffre, <laughs> in order to recover a huge sum of his client's money he lost in a failed plot that the British spy took down. 007 will not only discover the threatening organization behind his enemy, but the worst of all truths, to trust no one. That's a, that's a mighty fine summary. Mm-hmm. You Thank did... you, Wolf Patel. Got that on IMDb, <laughs> guys. <laughs> that is an awesome summary. Yeah. I approve. Yeah, the only part I wasn't crazy about was saying Le Chiffre. Le Chiffre. Yeah, I'll just <laughs> let you say it. <laughs> it's like when I try to say Denis Villeneuve. or How do you say it? The director uh, for uh, Blade Runner 2049. I, oh, you, I, I listened to you on Geek Media Core. I agree. Uh, <laughs> Denis V. Dennis v name. Dennis that was v. that. Dennis V. Yeah, we're all like, we're all afraid. We're like, Dennis V. Um, but okay, so, so yeah, so this movie, I. Uh, I have a couple of fun facts about it, but I know you have more. So let me just get mine out of the way and then we'll go with yours. (laughs) Okay. Um, So this, this is going to hurt. By the way, my husband's also a really big car guy. So I think 
a lot of his appeal for the movies is the cars, which is kind of a theme in a lot of the movies he picks. So he would be really hurt by this fact, too. But uh, in one afternoon shooting, three Aston Martin DBS cars valued at $300,000 each were destroyed for the car roll sequence. Oh, no. I watched the special feature. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, oh. oh. <laughs> That's got to be painful. Oh, the funny part was the fact that they couldn't get the car to flip. Oh, really? Oh, wow. It's just designed so well it won't flip. It's It was – the DBS was a race car. It wasn't even street legal and because it was so low to the ground and it had such a low center of gravity, they could never make the car flip. So they finally oh. had to put – they finally had to put like a gas – uh, not a, a gas, but like an air jet underneath the car. So when the car swerved and it kind of hit the ramp, they they had to shoot air to flip it enough to make it do that dramatic spin. The car was so well designed, it couldn't do that on its own. That is hilarious. Well, no, I did not know that. I just oh. I learned from from my husband that he's driving an Aston Martin. I wouldn't have even noticed that. That's how, like, not a car person I am. <laughs> oh, but see, it's Bond. He has to drive an Aston Martin. Exactly. It's just the yep. way it is. Yep. Um, so also, as of 2007, the highest grossing movie of the Bond official film franchise until Skyfall in 2012 surpassed it. I would totally believe that. Completely. Mm-hmm. I mean, because Quantum of Solace. Mm-hmm. Well, Rider's Strike. You know, yeah. we have to, you know, unfortunately, it was... A, Another body count of the writer, of the 2008 writer strike. Yes, yeah, that's true. Uh, even reading that Skyfall was in 2012 is like hard for me to believe. <laughs> oh, yeah, but it was it the 50th like anniversary of the it was the 50th anniversary of the film franchise. Oh, okay. Well, uh, so also during production, controversy erupted among some fans on the internet and the British press regarding the casting of Daniel Craig, a blonde James Bond. Since oh. then, <laughs> Craig has often had the nickname of James Blonde due to his lighter hair color, which is markedly different, of course, from Bond's usual dark hair. Which sounds uh, funny now. Like, it's like, really? You know, but I do kind of remember the buzz around that. Oh my God! No, I I remember. Oh, I remember the 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 buzz and oh my God, it was so ridiculous. It was like get over it. <laughs> I was like, how, yeah, it's funny how we forget though. Every time we'll, we'll have so many complaints about casting until we see the movie, but it's like you, you have to just wait till you see it, <laughs> you know, and stop nitpicking their hair color, their eye color. Like, if they do a good job, they do a good job, and it doesn't. If matter. they can play the role, they can play the role. That's that's all there is to it. Yeah, and I mean, Daniel Craig doesn't have that, like... I mean, this is a, a big difference from Pierce Brosnan, and we've kind of already talked about that, but he doesn't have... I mean, he's a, he's obviously a good-looking guy, but a good-looking, rugged guy. He's not... You know, he's not like what you... If, if I just said, oh, the new James Bond is going to be blonde with blue eyes, I mean, he's not like what you would automatically picture, right? You know? Oh, <laughs> so, oh no, and he and he trained, and he trained with the with a former Royal Marine mm-hmm. for this job. I remember I even bought, like, oh, I had the collections of all the men's magazines that came out during, you know, the lead-up to this movie, and, oh, the, <laughs> I mean, the regime he was put on, ah, uh, yeah, I mean, it worked for him because he looked good in that Speedo. I can admit that. <laughs> yeah, classic but, scene. Classic scene, you know, right up there with Ursula Andrews coming out in the white bikini from Doctor No. I mean, they they gave they gave the 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 women yeah. something to look at, just exactly. like the men have been getting for fifty years. You're starting to see why I like this movie more. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> kind of. I I wouldn't blame you at all, Lisa. Not <laughs> yeah. at all. 
Um, so, but yeah, but I just remember, oh no, he, he went through some, some serious training because I have buddies who are United States Marines and they disrespect everyone except for Royal Marines. Like mm-hmm. they, they even look at Royal Marines and go, those dudes are crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and it was very believable. And then if you see him in other movies, he looks so dramatically different too. I mean, oh. you know, like when you see like an older film that he was in, I mean, you, you don't look at that guy and think, oh, yeah, I, I can see him packing on, you know, 25 pounds of muscle and being James Bond. So it's it, it was a pretty big transformation. Well, and then his ability to, to do something other than that. I remember when I saw him in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. playing playing something completely different after being James Bond. And I was like, dude, respect mm-hmm. you. You've got range. Yeah, well, he was kind of oh, well, we'll get into it. Let me not get ahead. Because I, okay. I, have, I have thoughts about that. But uh, uh, so the director, Martin Campbell, who, by the way, and I'll, we'll go into this more. I didn't realize he directed Goldeneye and also the Green Lantern movie. But. Yeah, well, no, <laughs> but 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 he directed Goldeneye, but he also directed The Mask of Zorro with Antonio yes. Banderas and Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, so that's true. I had, I, you know, the Green Lantern movie happened later. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like, oh, the guy who directed Goldeneye and Mask of Zorro, I'm down for that. Right, right. You're like, this will automatically be good, which uh, not always the case. But uh, the director of the, uh, Martin Campbell has a cameo in this movie. He's the tanker truck driver that's murdered by the terrorist at Miami Airport. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, oh mm-hmm. my god! I know another cameo we can talk about later. One of the produ- one of the producers is in the movie, and I can I can point him out. Okay, cool. Um, also, and this this kind of hits close to home for me. Clive Owen was a fan favorite choice to play James Bond. However, he was never offered the role nor seriously considered. And I really thought he was going to be Bond because of the BMW movies. Do you remember those? I. Don't. Do tell. Okay, so BMW put out like five or six short films, and they all had different directors. It was like Guy Ritchie, I think Ang Lee. um, I can't remember the others off the top of my head, but they were five different shorts about a driver. But he was essentially James Bond. And like one of the, I know one of the uh, shorts, the Guy Ritchie one, he was uh, either dating or married to... Madonna at the time and his was called like the star and basically he goes to pick up uh, Clive Owen picks up uh, Madonna and then she's horrible and like really rude so he gives her this really rough ride all the way to her concert and it ends with him like swerving and kicking the door open and her flying out the car Um, but it was kind of to show off the car and what it can do but it was very like James Bondish. You should look at those well, that's also because like BMWs were the Bond cars for mm-hmm. the Pierce Brosnan era, yeah. which which was another reason why this movie was so great because like, yes, bring back the Aston Martin. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And I agree. But yeah, you should check those out. They're pretty good. I was obsessed with them for a while. I would watch them all the time. And I was convinced that Clive Owen was going to be James Bond. And then that's obviously not what happened. But, um, you know, it happens sometimes. They, they go with someone else. He, okay. He would have been more the... I guess Pierce Brosnan route, you know, if they were going to redo that again. But uh, by the time this came out, he probably would have been maybe too old for it anyway. Um, I would think so. Yeah. But uh, last last thing that I 
just now found out. This is not going to be news to you or anyone else that's a really big fan of this movie. But I didn't realize the guy in the beginning, uh, Sebastian Foucault, was in the inventor of parkour. I had no yep. idea. We were watching oh, yeah. it. We are like, wait, what? And in fact, before we started, I was watching another video about him, just learning about him because I was just so interested in that. It's, it's hard to remember a time in movies when we didn't have parkour like everywhere right like i feel like it's a requirement now <laughs> oh to have and, it and, in every movie and that opening madagascar chase yes was mind-blowing back in 2006 because we had never seen that before mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's like i i kind of i forgot i forgot that you know there was a time before it almost but um but yeah i that's such a great scene and you can really see why Every single one of these James Bond movies Daniel Craig does, he kind of wants to quit because it, like, almost kills him. <laughs> yes! Like, it's so, you know, like, I was watching in the special features, they were even saying, like, oh, we make sure that they pretty much do, you know, most of their own stunts because audiences can really tell and we don't want to rely on CG and da-da-da-da. It's like, yes, yes to all that, but I do kind of feel bad <laughs> for Daniel Craig, like... You know, he every time he's like, I cannot do this again. And then I don't know. I guess he sees the paycheck one more time and he goes, never mind. I'll do it. <laughs> hey, I was shocked he came back for Bond 25. Yeah, because the way Spectre ended, it seemed like a nice little bow on his era mm-hmm. that he could have ridden off in that Aston Martin in the sunset. And I would have been happy for, you know, I, I'm glad he's coming back. But like. I'm I'm shocked he came back for the next movie. Yeah. I really thought he was done after Spectre. See, I liked Spectre, but I don't know. I'm kind of glad he's doing one more because to me, I mean, and we can we can discuss this. I feel like you have a different take on it, but for me, Skyfall was above Spectre. Oh no 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 no! Okay, Spectre okay. was a step down from Skyfall. Yeah, it was like I I had the thought because I I knew that he was saying he didn't want to do him anymore. And I was like, I kind of felt like part of it was because of the way that movie played out. You know, it was really grueling for him. And I'm sure he got injured again. And he probably just thought this was not Skyfall. And, you know, I want to go out with a bang. But do I really want to invest my time in another movie that, again, may not ever reach what Casino Royale was or what, you know, Skyfall is? So it's like I kind of I kind of thought he was done. Um, Yeah, I'm, I'm glad he's back. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, you know, I know this is completely talking about a different movie. No, it's okay. But, you know, but, <laughs> That's how we do. <laughs> but, you know, I don't have the hate for Spectre that other people have. I just think it was Skyfall was such an amazing Bond movie. Yeah. I mean, it was just an amazing movie. And then the problem is it's the one-upmanship. It's like you almost need the next one to be better. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't better than Skyfall. So I feel like Spectre gets harsh criticism because of people's expectations coming out of Skyfall, where if you just kind of sit back and watch Spectre, it's like, no, it's a perfectly fine Bond movie. It's not Quama. It's not Quama Solace. I mean, that one I will totally throw to the curb. Spectre I will watch again. Quantum of Solace, I kind of pretend didn't happen. We've talked about the director, so we're about to trans... I mean, if I know your show well enough, we're about to make the transition into cast. So I'm going to go ahead and make a bold statement on your podcast. Okay, go for it. Daniel Craig is my favorite James Bond. Shots fired. I'm Shots saying fired. he beats Connery. I mean, it, it it hurts me to say that. But I think I can only say it because I read Fleming's books. Mm-hmm. And I have to give so much to, A, the, char- the deep, 
well-rounded characterization that Craig is able to perform Bond with in his movies mm-hmm. that I feel like was taken away from Connery. Because I will, I will state that if you go back and watch Dr. No and From Russia With Love, uh, Connery's first two Bond movies, mm-hmm. he approaches that Daniel Craig-esque uh, quality of James Bond. But then it was Goldfinger that it basically became a cartoon. And then I it just agree got, with that, yeah. I, there's a then, huge difference between Dr. No and Goldfinger. Yes. So because of the way the franchise went, I I have to say Daniel Craig is number one for my James Bond, but with Connery being a extremely close and respectable number two. But that is a very controversial statement, I feel like. And I'm going <laughs> to get ready for the hate mail. Oh, you better believe it. I'm, I'm already prepared. <laughs> I'm already prepared. Well, you know, Daniel Craig, uh, I totally forgot that he was in Tomb Raider. Yes, he was. I totally I almost forgot that until you said it because I've yeah. only seen that movie like one time. Oh, we saw it in the theater because, uh, you know, that was like the closest thing to a female Indiana Jones. So we like loved the game. And so. Me and my uh, me and my best friend uh, were just really excited about that movie, which it was fine. But I mean, I didn't know that he was in it, and I didn't really know that until I read it on IMDb. And now I'm gonna have to go back and watch it. But he did that movie. Uh, I think Layer Cake. I was. Oh, I love was Layer Cake. The biggest oh, I... influence in him getting the James Bond role. Oh, have you seen Layer Cake? I haven't. No. Oh, that is such a good movie. It <laughs> it is it is British gangster noir directed by Matthew Vaughn. It was Matthew Vaughn's first movie. Oh, okay. Okay. I need to see oh. it then. I mean, that sounds up my alley. Oh, Michael Gabon is the like the bad guy and mm-hmm. he's like the godfather of this British mob. Oh, you will eat it up. I promise you. Okay. I'll check that out. And also he was in uh, Munich, which is I also haven't seen. I haven't seen that either. He's also in uh, Road to Perdition. That's right. He was in Road to Perdition. I remember I had the, the uh, I think I had the, the graphic novel before that movie came out. I saw that in theaters. I had high hopes for that movie. <laughs> I had high hopes for that movie, too. Yeah. And but um, but, you know, he wasn't an issue. Paul Newman yeah. wasn't an issue. So, you know what? There's there's enough to love. I'm not I'm not going to bash it because there's enough to love about I that. Agree. movie. I agree. It wasn't amazing, but it wasn't bad. No, I agree. Um, and then also, of course, he's in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which I will say I'm partial to the original. And I, uh, you know, I read the book. I think I read two two or three of the books. I don't think I finished the series. But, um, but I still, I like Daniel Craig's performance. I'll say that. I appreciate, and this is the weirdest thing, is that the American adaptation of a Swedish novel was more mm-hmm. accurate to the book than the Swedish adaptation. Yeah, and, yeah. And so I give respect to that movie, which is really funny because the opening title sequence, The Girl with Dragon Tattoo, uh, with that remix of Immigrant Song, is like the closest non-James Bond opening sequence that looks like a James Bond sequence I have ever seen. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess maybe just because I saw the Swedish one first, like I got really into those books, uh, for a while and I, you know, I read them and then I saw that movie and then I kind of, I was like scared to see, even though it's a Fincher film, I was scared to see it. I was like, I don't know. Like there's just, I have a certain idea about it, you know? So I was probably influenced by that. Okay. 
But uh, also, random fact, another Indiana Jones connection. Uh, Daniel Craig was actually in an episode of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Yes, he was. <laughs> yes, he was, because I have that on DVD. <laughs> I don't think yeah. – it's been so long since I've seen that show. There's no way I would remember that. But I saw he, it is in, he is in an episode with the Sean Patrick Flannery mm-hmm. age young indiana jones right. while he is working for um military intelligence during world war one oh, and he okay. play, and he plays a german officer in like africa i yes and he is such <laughs> a, and he is such a baby it is he is so young but yet he's still daniel craig yep well um do you have more facts about daniel craig that you want to discuss or do you want to move on I think we need to move on. Yeah, I think we, we're I just going to go on and on. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, let's talk about Ava Green a little bit, who plays Vesper Lynn. <laughs> I, that, that's pretty much what I have to say about Ava Green. <laughs> I was very pleased with this casting. Mm-hmm. Um, I did find she was in a really off the wall, which tends to be her style. Yeah. Off like the I think wall. she has that kind of different look. Mm-hmm. Choosing this off-the-wall independent film that I cannot remember the name of at the time. I'm sure you maybe have it in your notes. Let me, but, uh, I'll pull up her bio. Keep talking. But, yes, the she has that gravelly sort of Lauren Bacall type of voice. The smoky eyes. Mm-hmm. A, nice, a nice figure. I will be polite. <laughs> And um, I was a very happy man watching this movie. That's <laughs> You're all like, I have this to say. Uh, was it? Let's see, I don't know. I guess without knowing the plot, just looking at the titles. It's it, it's like it's like a brother and sister with some guy in like Paris. It's 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 total like European. Oh, independent. The Dreamers. Yes, okay, that's the okay. movie. Yes, that is a weird movie. <laughs> I I I can't say I enjoy it. <laughs> but that was actually like I when she was in the movie it was like you know you start kind of looking at their filmography trying to find anything mm-hmm. and that was really the only major movie she had done before Casino Royale mm-hmm. yeah yeah well um, I don't know much about her and I didn't find honestly tons of facts on her uh, I know she's got a couple films coming out uh, let's see it looks like there's one in 2017, I don't know if it's already out, it's called Based on a True Story, uh, another movie called Euphoria, and then she's in pre-production for Proxima and Dumbo. I know they're making, I, I guess they are making a live-action Dumbo, aren't they? They are With making Tim a live-action Dumbo. Oh, no. Yes. Oh, no, I don't know. <laughs> well, because she just worked <laughs> with him in Tim Burton's Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Yeah, yeah, I see that there, too. And, um, and Dark Shadows, too, it looks like. She did Dark, and she did Dark Shadows. And then she also was in the sequel to Sin City, Sin, uh, Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. She was the Dame. Oh, okay. I don't think I've seen the sequel. It's not as good as the original, but if you go into it with the I Just Want a Sin City movie, mm-hmm. I I enjoyed it. And Ava Green, I'm going to admit, is a huge part of how much I enjoyed that movie because the – the a dame to kill for is the central story that really drives the movie. It's it's just like Sin City where there's like these little short stories. It's like three or four different stories, mm-hmm. but her story is like the major one. It involves Clive's Owen. It, like it's the backstory of Clive Owen's character from the first movie. Gotcha. Okay. Well, um, 
as far as in this movie, you know, she was a pretty big departure from your typical Bond girl. I mean, they kind of still give you a Bond girl with Solange. But, yes. uh, you know, she's kind of the more what you would expect. But, uh, you know, this character, Vesper Lind, they, they have this sort of um, mutual respect and intelligence. And, you know, they both have a, a troubled past. They're both reading each other really well. And I just I thought she did such a great job with that character. I mean, Vesper is the original Bond girl. I mean, she was the first one from the first book. And so I thought not only did I think they did them justice, I think they even made her an even deeper character than what she was in Fleming's novel. Yeah. And she's not I mean, she's not a spy. I mean, she's living a life of danger, but she doesn't come off, you know, damsel in distressy. Um, so do you want to talk about Mads Mikkelsen? Hopefully I'm saying that right. I can't say his name or the character name. (laughs) Mads Mikkelsen, yes. I love him. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, he is fantastic. I, this movie introduced him to me. I had not, I don't remember seeing him before seeing him in this movie. Yeah, I I can't say that I have either. Sorry, not Dutch, Danish. Yes. Um, and, uh. Yeah, I, I don't know if I saw him before this movie. I mean, he's been in tons of stuff now. I mean, he's, like, everywhere. It's oh, like yeah. him he, and Christoph Waltz are, like, everywhere. <laughs> oh, well, he, he – the thing he did after – I saw him in a couple of movies, but the thing he did after this that I loved was when he played Hannibal Lecter mm-hmm. in the Hannibal TV show. Yeah, it's pretty close to perfect. Oh, it's like, he, how, how can you possibly replace, you know, Anthony Hopkins? Like, here's how. Here's how. <laughs> like, Yeah. He just has that, you know, seeing him in any kind of role where he's actually a good guy is kind of hard. Yes, like in Rogue One, were you like convinced he was evil? <laughs> uh, but good, you know he's what? Good in that movie, right? I mean, he's so good in that movie. I love Rogue One. <laughs> me too. But it's but I kept thinking, okay, but it's him. So any minute now, he's going to be evil. You know. Uh, there's also a. And I had friends who recommended this to me. There is actually a Danish film he is in uh, that's like set in the time of like the Vikings. And it's and it's and it's a foreign language film. It's totally in Danish. And it is just it's a different kind of movie. I'm not going to say that I love it, but it was definitely a oh, I'm trying to find. The is it type. The Hunt? Um. No, because I need to see that movie, actually. Okay. No, but it's actually like it, it's not set in the modern day. It's I am trying to find it and I'm totally wasting time on the air. But no, it fine. is um, Valhalla Rising. Oh, OK. OK. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, he was a pretty big Danish film star before he crossed over here. I mean, I'm looking at his IMDb and it seems like he was in a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. And and unfortunately, you know. I, and I do not want to hate on Marvel because I do watch all the Marvel movies. <laughs> um, but, man, he was wasted as the villain in Doctor Strange. Right? And it was just... Yes. I mean, I, I like that movie, but it suffers from the same thing that I'm just going to say it. All Marvel movies suffer from. The villain is just not eh. interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I love everything else about that movie. Yeah, and I wanted and I wanted and I wanted to love him because I love his character. I love that actor. But uh, but yeah, but no, check out um, the I will warn you about Valhalla Rising. It is slow. It 
uh, it is very slow. But you know, maybe if you watch like Vikings on History Channel, yeah, it I, and might I did. I watched some... like the first couple of seasons. I really like it. The only reason I'm not watching it is because I have so many shows to watch that I don't have time to. But I really liked it. So well, then you know, drink some coffee so you don't <laughs> fall asleep, and check out Valhalla Rising because okay. I had some friends who were like, dude, that guy from. You know, they say Lashif from Casino Royale. You know, that's what my friends call him. It's like, you you know, Lashif. You know, you need to watch this movie. So, okay, I, I'll take your word on it. Yep. Okay. Well, I will have to check that out. Um, let's see here. We have to talk with Jeffrey Wright. I feel like as okay. Felix Felix Leiter because. The man has just knocked it out of the park in Westworld. <laughs> yes, I did not even know he was in this movie. Like, we watched this again uh, the other night, and I was like, oh, wow, it's him. <laughs> like, I mean, because I didn't know who he was when I saw this movie. Oh, I didn't either. This was the first thing I ever saw him in. And so then he was in The Hunger Games, and it's just like i he's now one of those actors that i just love his personality on screen and so i i hope he gets more work because because between felix leiter and the hunger games and westworld i am i'm i like you jeffrey wright keep getting work i know i uh he's so awesome in westworld and it's great cuz he can always come back cuz <laughs> i saw yes! he's already going to be in season 2 because i mean they're robots they come back yes <laughs> so i'm excited about that oh I feel like we, of course, have to wrap this up by talking about Judy Dench. I yes, mean, yes, yes. How can we not talk about Dame Judy Dench? I mean, she's so good. Like you said, she was M in Goldeneye, the first female M ever, and they had to bring her back. I mean, it doesn't matter about the continuity; you have to bring Judy. Oh, Dench back. you just you just throw continuity out the window. You just go, it's Judy Dench. She gets to stay. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a pretty cool fact about her. Uh, as of 2014, she's received, and she's probably about to receive more. But she's received seven Oscar nominations, all of them when she was already over the age of 60. <sighs> Pretty crazy. No other yeah. actress uh, collected more nominations when older than 60. The closest runner-ups have been Katherine Hepburn, Paul Newman, Laurence Olivier, Spencer Tracy, Melvin Douglas, and Edith Evans with a mere three. Wow. I mean, that's pretty insane. I mean, but yeah, I mean, she definitely... She she earned it, and she uh, she got Best Supporting Actress for Shakespeare in Love. Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. That's just, that's the one that's it's like I'm so glad you won an award, but for but that for movie, that one, yeah, out of all of them. And I know she's about. I mean, she's this lady. You can't stop her. She's still making movies. Like she's gonna be in that Victoria and Abdul, and then also in Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, I'm so looking forward to that I movie. I'm really looking forward to that. I get pretty excited every time I see a trailer. So. Um, the one of my favorite roles to watch her in was there was a 70s production of Macbeth that the BBC uh, filmed, and it is Ian McKellen as Macbeth and Judy Dench as Lady Macbeth. Oh, nice! I, I oh. will need to check that out. Oh, it is now. It's a filmed stage version, so mm -hmm. brace brace yourself for that. <laughs> but um, it just it's just. It's these Shakespearean train. I mean, it was with the Royal Shakespeare Company. So yeah. I mean, it's these it's these Shakespearean trained actors who can just go off then and play everything. Right. I mean, when she was M to Pierce Brosnan, I, it was like this. She reluctantly had to deal with Bond because she just saw him as like 
oh, you must, I mean, she even calls him a misogynist pig, a relic <laughs> of the Cold War. And then in the, in this movie, she is the relic of the cult. Like she's the one, I mean, one of my favorite lines in this movie is when she goes, Christ, I miss the cold war. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And she, as you know, as the movies go on, I mean, you sort of get it in this film, but as they go on, there's really, I think with Daniel Craig in, in this franchise, there's this big, you know, mother, father thing kind of looming because he's an orphan and she takes on, you know, almost a motherly type role with him so right it's like you know in this movie it's more like i see you you need this Mm -hmm. but if you're going to survive at this you've got to learn a few lessons Mm -hmm. and 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 i like that that's what this movie this movie almost is becoming james bond oh for sure because he's not i mean Spoiler alert. He's not really James Bond, the the James Bond we think of until the end of the movie. And she even has that line at the end of the movie. Then you've learned your lesson. And it's like, that's what this movie was. It was you learning your lesson. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's a perfect wrap up. Well, before we go on, so we've, we've covered all the actors. Let's talk about the plot. Do you want to talk about some of your favorite scenes? Oh my God. I've got like, (laughs) I, my, my, my children even lost one of my uh, sheets. I, I took like five <laughs> like five sheets of notebook paper just like making notes about glorious moments in this movie. I want to talk about the fact that, you know, one of the formulas of a James Bond movie is the pre-credit sequence. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it usually had been we're going to do the most outlandish possible stunt to start the movie. Like that that kind of became – the the trope of the bond franchise and then to kind of flip it on its head and make this opening sequence not some outlandish incredible stunt but just let's film it in black and white and let's show bond becoming a double o because as it's established in the fleming novels you need two kills because what they never really address in the movies that's made very clear in the book is that the double O division are assassins. Like oh, that okay. is their job. So to get double O status, you had to successfully have two kills, which are what basically what the double O's are. Those are your two kills. And then that gets you double O status. Like you've earned your stripes when you get your first two kills. Oh, okay. I did not know that. That's really so, cool. so starting this movie off in with a character who this is his origin in the books. Like he is supposed to be taking out a traitor, and they they did that. And then the cutting in between him kind of sitting calmly with the station chief who he's having to assassinate because he's selling secrets, and then switching with that really grainy bathroom fight. Where he's mm-hmm. killing the contact and he is not being Bond at all because mm-hmm. he is doing this very badly. Yep. <laughs> I, it's just – it was just so visceral, mm-hmm. especially where you see him kill the guy in the bathroom and it's dirty and he's drowning him in the sink. Yeah. And then you And then you cut to him like sitting at the chair across from him just holding a gun on him. And the guy starts to say, well, the second – well, the second one is – and he just shoots him, and he goes, yes, considerably, and then just walks <laughs> off. And you're yeah. like, dang, you're cold. I know. It just it sets the whole tone of the movie. It, it tells you so much about 
the direction the movie's going to go, you know, because I, I think we have this idea before you walk into this movie, if you haven't read the book, if you haven't, if you don't have that history of, you know, Pierce Brosnan, and then the first few minutes of this movie tell you right away, no, throw that out the window. <laughs> this is James Bond. Well, that was great because it set expectations for the mm-hmm. film. It's like, no, 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 no. Everything you think you know about James Bond, stop. This ain't your daddy's James Bond. Right, yeah. And, yeah, I really like that. What do you think of, like, the opening, like, the, you know, the the James Bond opening credit type part? Oh, it was gorgeous. I loved the casino um, theme and mm-hmm. and the car and the and, and and all the card iconography in, in the opening tile sequence, I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was colorful and splashy. It was very animated, which it was something very different mm-hmm. for a James Bond opening sequence. You know, not once do you see a silhouette of a naked woman at any mm-hmm. point in this opening tile sequence. And I have got to give a shout out to, unfortunately, the late Chris Cornell. Yeah. For his Bond song, You Know My Name. Uh, that song was actually, there was a little bit of a controversy back in 2006. Oh, really? The soundtrack album for Casino Royale was the first one where the Bond song was not included on the soundtrack album. What? That's crazy. Wait, I think wh- it has. What was the dis- why did they do that? I think it's because, you know, the Bond films currently have distribution rights through Sony. Well, Sony owns a music label and they released a soundtrack album. So I think there was an issue where Chris Cornell was Chris Cornell was not allowed to appear on the record label, probably because of some sort of contract deal with his record label. Oh, wow. So there actually was a disclaimer on the soundtrack album that said, uh, Chris Cornell's, you know, you know my name performer, Chris Cornell does not appear on this album. Like, they had to advertise it on the back of the album, kind of subtly, you're not going to get the song on this CD. Well, yeah, I mean, that's like, I I think probably the main reason why people would buy that CD. Well, and the problem was, was that there was also like three or four different remixes of You Know My Name, and none of them... None of them was the actual version you hear in the film. That's ridiculous. Oh, my God. I was doing, like, MP3 downloading. I was trying to find. Because, <laughs> like, the version they ended up releasing in the States was, like, the full-on rock version mm-hmm. without the orchestra sound playing at, through it. And I ended up buying I ended up buying a copy of the single from germany off of like amazon deutschland because i was trying to track down a version of the song that had the orchestra in it that's so weird i wonder why they oh that's annoying when they make decisions like that oh trust me so seeing seeing it in context of the film and hearing that bond-esque you know track behind him oh Mm. i loved it and another little tidbit it was co-written by the composer of the film so chris cornell wrote the song with david arnold so what also happens is that something that did not happen a lot in the brosnan era because they got singer songwriters or Mm -hmm. singers with their own writing teams to write the songs and since they were not since they were not uh they were usually written towards the end you never heard the the melody of the song play in the score. 
So during the entire Brosnan era, you never hear the Bond song of that movie playing in the underscore. And so, and so in this film, you hear, you know, my name all the time because wink, wink, you don't hear the bond theme till the end. So, you know, my name was the pseudo bond theme for the film. Well, yeah, because he's not bond. Like you said, until the end of the movie, until the end of the movie. So I, I adore the opening title sequence. I adore this song. It's actually, one of my favorite, one of my favorite Bond songs, and definitely, if not my favorite, one of my favorite Craig Daniel Craig songs. Yeah, yeah, I I have to agree. I I like this song, and I do. I like the Skyfall song too. I like Skyfall too, even though I will admit I was disappointed hearing Skyfall on the album. But it mm-hmm. worked so well in the opening title. Yeah, sequence. The, I think that the opening sequence is what I like. Yeah, well, and and the cut of the song to the sequence. Like mm-hmm. there are some Bond songs that you don't need to see the opening title sequence. You can just enjoy the song. That's true. But there, but there are some that's like, no. If I'm going to listen to this song, it needs to be with that opening title sequence. And you know, my name is one of those that I can just listen to the song by itself. I don't need that glorious title sequence to improve upon the song. Yeah. So, what is your favorite? <sighs> Ooh. <laughs> You're like no. Uh, I ooh, I'm gonna have to go an oldie but goodie. As much as I've kind of given crap to Goldfinger on this podcast, surely Basie singing Goldfinger is yeah, just it's it's good. it's good. Especially that last note that she just hits and then holds for what seems like forever. I have I have to give respect to that, but I will say a special story. My um, mother son dance at my wedding was Aww. my was my mom and I dancing to Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon, which is from The Spy <laughs> Who Loved Me. Oh, uh, so after the towel sequence, I kind of want to turn the tables on you. So what is your next favorite scene, you know, m- moving into the movie? Because I, if you just leave this to me, I will monopolize this podcast and I and it's your podcast and you need to get a chance to oh, throw no, in some of your, your episode. Ugh. I don't know. You know what? Go ahead with your next one. I'm going to chime in with my favorite because I don't want to say something out of out of order. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think we the problem is we kind of we talked about this, but the free running sequence in Madagascar mm-hmm. yeah. was was just incredible, and the fact that after the CGI fest that was Die Another Day, mm, yeah. it was so nice to go back to a Bond movie where. Oh, no, you could tell this was real people doing all these stunts. Mm -hmm. Somebody was standing on a crane on the top of a construction site fighting another guy because that was one thing Martin Campbell is really good. He's really good with stunts, and he's really good with with photographing stunts. And that goes back to my love for Goldeneye and especially my love for all the sword fighting in The Mask of Zorro. But just the kinetic energy of how he shot that entire sequence, even to the point where – yeah, uh, the free runner, uh, who's a bomb maker in the movie, is so smooth, and and Bond is like running through drywall. Like, yes, I love that part. <laughs> oh my god, I laughed so hard the first time I saw that, and it ties into something that Judy Dench's M calls him later in the movie. He's a blunt instrument. It's yes. like I'm not going to do shoulder rolls. 
and parkour my way down, I'm literally going to run through the wall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this first sequence, actually, all the sequences in the movie, because you know, you can you when you think about this movie, I mean, they are playing poker for a lot of it, but then they're able to put that, but also these incredibly intense action moments as well that are very memorable. And, uh, and yeah, I think this, this one is probably up there for me. Well, I think even the producer said that you have a novel that, that three fourths of it takes place at a poker table. Mm -hmm. We had to do something Yeah, (laughs) because, because we couldn't have a movie, you know, when the movie's climax is a poker game, (laughs) you have to do something kind of around it to kind of, you know, appeal to the masses. Mm-hmm. It's like we got to Okay, action scene here, action scene here. Like they they time them in just such a way that you never feel like the movie t- slows down. You know, right? Yeah. And like I mentioned earlier, the book is the shortest Bond novel, so oh, they okay. had to they had to add a lot to oh. this adaptation to fill it out, and also at the time make it the longest Bond movie almost ever, which at, mm-hmm. at almost two and a half hours. I yeah. think the closest one up to that point was on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which was also an extremely faithful adaptation of the novel. Hmm. So it's, there's kind of a trend here. The, the more faithful they are to the book, the longer the movies tend to be. Gotcha. Probably because, like you said, they have to add in some, I, I hate to use the word filler, but action sequences that aren't in the book. They have to exactly. add something that, you know, general audience go general audiences would say this is what a bond film has to have so they got to put that back in there in addition to the story exactly i would agree with that yeah um so what's what's the next scene you want to talk about um i i I kind of i kind (laughs) i kind of i kind of already talked about it but i mean the introduction of m in the movie as Mm -hmm. she's storming out of that parliament meeting where she's just like i report to the prime minister and even he's smart enough not to ask what we do (laughs) It's the it's the idea. It's like the reality of of intelligence that mm-hmm. the governments want to act like they want to know what we do, but they really don't. But for us to do our job, you really don't want to know what they do. Right. And and then of course that's where you get that great line, "Christ, I miss the Cold War." <laughs> and then uh, and then it goes right to where she goes to her apartment and like bonds like in her apartment, mm-hmm. and she's like. How the hell do you know where I live? She's and like, boundaries, yeah. Boundaries, yeah, boundaries. And this was a great line as a fan of the novels. It's when Bond says, I thought M was a randomly assigned letter. I didn't know it stood for. And it's the first time in the movie franchise they acknowledge the fact that M is called M because that's the initials of his name. Oh, so, okay. So, and, you know, it was first introduced in the Moonraker novel. And then they paid it off in Skyfall because you get to hear what her name is in mm-hmm. Skyfall. And then Ray finds his character. His name, his name is actually the actual M character from the books. And oh, so when he okay. becomes, yeah, I was so stupid. I didn't even realize that till the end of the movie. I felt like such a bad Bond fan. I was like, Mallory, wait a minute. That's the actual M. Oh, wow. So, okay, okay. So that little, that once again, they were subtle enough to put little winks that's like, the, it was the first time in a long time they were servicing the fans of the books mm-hmm. to say, let's wink at this and let you know, let's bring up the fact that he's an orphan. Let's talk about the fact that M is actually her name and not just a randomly assigned letter. So there were lots of little things like that that, you know, 
just made me kind of, you know, after driving two hours to another city to see this movie, it just <laughs> it just kind of made me even giddier to watch this movie. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, I didn't know that. Um, I didn't even know that the, the orphan um, aspect of it was in the book, so. Uh, it's, it's not introduced until much later, mm. but, um, but yeah, there's like an obituary for Bond, and M writes it, and you oh. get his entire backstory. Oh, wow, like, okay. As an epilogue, uh, it's actually at the end of. Ooh, I'm setting myself up now. I've got to get this right. <laughs> oh no! Uh, Sometimes I listen to past episodes and I'm like, mm, that's wrong. Usually, uh, someone will someone will tweet me. <laughs> it's you only live you only live twice. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that's, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but yeah, if you want if you want Bond's backstory, just just walk into a bookstore, pick a copy off the shelf, and relate the last three pages of that book, and you'll get his official backstory. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, because I think you know I've heard people say they don't like that movie because they don't want to know his backstory, but that's interesting that you do get it even the book. So I am such a nerd, and I just, <laughs> I just and I just no, make I'm loving up. it. It's awesome. <laughs> there's no there's no such thing as too much. Oh. And so, so yeah, so that was that. So even a little scene like Bond and M talking, you know, makes me giddy in this movie just because yeah. of all the connections. Well, and like, like I was kind of saying before, no character is wasted or extra or like, for instance, Q's not here at all. No. Randomly. No. I mean, I like Q. Don't get me wrong. I do enjoy that character a lot. But it, it's kind of like they didn't feel like they had to include that character if that character doesn't have a part in this movie, which doesn't because in this movie there's almost no gadgets right like no he has a defibrillator that's it and he doesn't even really know how to use it <laughs> no he he gets the tracker implanted in his arm he gets the defibrillator in the aston martin and he gets the aston martin but even the aston martin doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles mm-hmm. he has a gun and a defibrillator in the glove compartment yeah there's and no that's reason it. for q to show up and go this is a gun you know, this is your car. Like, there's nothing that he would be showing him. No. I guess I mean, how to use a defibrillator, but. <laughs> but but even then, you had Q division. Like, yeah. I, 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 I say in my head that those people he was call, he was talking to on the phone was Q division. Yeah. So yeah. we just didn't have, you know, a, a, a you know, he, he didn't have an assigned, you know, because do you know what Q stands for? Mm-mm. Quartermaster. Oh, okay. Which is the person in the army who like signs out your gear. Oh, so, gotcha. Okay. So yeah, so that's because they actually say that in I think it's in Doctor No or in From Russia with Love they actually call him Quartermaster, oh, and so I see. that's what Q stands for. Okay, okay, that makes sense. But yeah, he doesn't really need that in this movie, and so you don't have him. And no, I like you don't. that. I like I like that they were really careful with, you know, not overloading the movie with characters and. No, they yeah. didn't even have, and they didn't even have Money Penny. That's true. So, I mean, uh, you know, M has, I, you don't even, he doesn't even get named in the movie, but you no, know, his, her, assi- her male assistant, she has throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a character in the books. He's chief of staff. Oh, really? Okay, okay. So in the books, M has chief of staff and Money Penny because Money Penny's ah. secretary, and so. And and ironically, the actor who plays her chief of staff in Casino Royale actually plays like Claire's husband in Outlander. If you watch that show on Stars, uh, uh-uh, I haven't seen it. Uh, he he shows up in a lot of stuff. He's got weird oh, okay. teeth, but he's a good actor. <laughs> but then they recast him in Quam of Solace, and then Rory Kinnear, 
who uh, played Frankenstein and Penny Dreadful, also with Ava Green, by the way, um, has played chief of staff through all the rest of the Craig movies. So, oh, okay. so this actor only plays this role in this one movie. Oh gosh. Oh, I didn't notice that. I'll have to go back. Like, you know, I have to admit to you when I saw this movie again, it had been so long and I've seen this movie a lot, but it was like, not like watching it for the first time, but it was definitely, there was a lot that I felt like I missed. And it made me want to go back and rewatch all all the Daniel Craig ones because I, I, I just thought they were fresher in my mind than it turned out to be. Oh, yeah. And I'm actually trying to – I want to give credit to that guy instead of just calling him like the dude who plays the husband in in, <laughs> in, in Outlander. But, oh, here, here he is. His name is Tobias Menzies. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, but you know, he, this is his only his only time getting to play the chief of staff. And then they recast him in all the future movies. Poor guy. So, um, so oh, uh, go ahead. I was about to say, so are we are we getting near one of your favorite scenes? Because this is just because I'm literally just like going through the movie at this no, point. It's fine. You can. You can. Uh, because the next up is like like a classic Bond movie. They have to go to the Bahamas. Yeah, <laughs> you know, specific, specific, which which is which makes sense because you know, um, Goldeneye was actually the name of Ian Fleming's house in Jamaica, and that's where he wrote Casino Royale mm-hmm. was at his estate in Jamaica. So they there was there was always been a going back to I think uh, Thunderball film. There has since Thunderball, like almost every other movie, there's always a setting in the Bahamas. Oh, I didn't notice that. I did read that two scenes in this movie like they're supposed to be in two different places but they filmed both of them at the bahamas did you read that um i'm not surprised time they were like oh we're somewhere else now (laughs) i have to try to find that but and then um, of course you know when you get to the bahamas the first thing you see do you see bond driving is a ford mm -hmm. i remember that was like really because you know there's always blatant product placement in bond movies it just is and and you just deal with it but i did have to love the fact that the bad guy, Demetrius, who he's tracking down the Bahamas, has a 1964 Aston Martin DB5, mm-hmm. which which was the first Aston Martin seen on film uh, with James Bond, which is in Goldfinger. And that's like like when people think about James Bond's car, you think of the Aston Martin DB5. Gotcha. And and so when he referenced, I nicked this 1964 Aston Martin. And then, you, you know, the car guy in me is going, yay, <laughs> sweet. You know, it's that gunmetal silver DB5. It's just the car you think of. And then he actually wins it in the poker game. Mm-hmm. And and then the fact that he wins it in that game uh, allows it to show up in all the future. Like they were they wrote them in a way to let Daniel Craig's bond still have a vintage sports car from the 60s. Wow. And I love yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do like that scene. I will say a lot of my favorite scenes are, I think, towards the middle or end of the movie. That's why I haven't piped up yet. Oh, well, but that's, that's... I, I like all these scenes, obviously, because I really like the movie. Oh, yeah. Well, then you get to Miami where he's trying to stop the bomb. You know, it's kind of like what get the plot going is because he stops mm-hmm. the bombing of an airplane in Miami, which causes Le Chiffre to lose all his money, which is why he has to have the uh, the poker game mm-hmm. at Casino yeah. Royale to kind of win the money back or he's going to be dead. Right. And uh, I love the fact that there was so much tension. Uh, 
he runs a lot. My goddamn Craig has to like jog through this entire movie. He does. He's like he's like uh, I I heard like a comparison of like it kind of reminds you of those Born movies because <laughs> yes! he's running so much. Oh, and, and just it it. it it started the whole trend of just watching how emotionally detached Daniel Craig's bond is like mm-hmm. when he comes back, you know, he seduces this guy's wife to find out information. Then he literally orders her champagne caviar and then like jets out the door. I don't right. even think he's like, cause she's going to the bedroom to get ready. Mm-hmm. And then he just is out the door and then he comes back and she's, dr- she's been dra- tortured, drowned and left hanging in a hammock. And he's just looking at her like, okay. Yeah, he's like, oh, well, next. Oh, well, next. <laughs> yes, yeah, that was that was a pretty good scene. Yeah, I just, it just added to, it just added to his character. And it also was fun because the whole time, you know, we even, I even skipped over Le Chiffre's introduction. But mm-hmm. the whole time, Mr. White, you know, that contact is talking about my organization. Uh-huh. And yeah. I just, the whole time was like, and your organization is... Because it's like, who who is it going to be? Mm-hmm. Because actually in the movie, in the books, it's actually the Russians. It's the Soviet oh, Union. Oh, okay. It's an organization called Smersh. It's because Spectre only shows up in three books. Of like 14 James Bond novels, Spectre doesn't show up until almost like the next to last three. So that was kind of cool because I love that they never even gave it a name. It was just my organization. Mm-hmm. And of course for the movies, we're all thinking Spectre. Because in yeah. the movies, that's the organization. Because in all the classic Bond films, they really did combine Smersh and Spectre into just the big bad of all the early James Bond movies. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I think because I haven't seen as many of the early ones, I, I didn't realize that. Well, I think in the early ones, even though we were in the middle of the Cold War, I don't think they wanted – to alienate an audience mm-hmm. by making the the main the main antagonist so blatantly the Soviet Union. Mm. That's because they want. I mean, a lot of people didn't have a problem doing that. <laughs> well, but I think it's also because James Bond is is a yeah. it's more international. It was a British production. Yes, mm-hmm. it got distributed by an American company, but it's a British film company. It's a British right. film studio th- that came up with the Bond movies. So they wanted to be a little bit more international. So they they took Spectre, which was a private, independent terrorist organization, and just used them when Spectre was in the books. But then also replaced Smersh and just said, "Okay, we're not going to make the Soviet Union, you know, because even if from Russia with love, instead of being the Soviet Union is the bad guy, it's Spectre trying to pawn off the Soviet Union against the Americans and the British. Right. So they were very diplomatic in the movies. Mm, okay, that makes sense. Which then works great for this because we're in a post 9-11 world in these right. movies. And the idea of these, you know, unnamed, unknown, independent terrorist organizations actually kind of hit home in a post 9-11 world. That's and true. I think yeah. made it more relevant. Yeah. Well, I think we're starting to get into the parts of the movie that I like, which is I think once we get to the poker game. Okay. Well, go ahead. Um, Talk. Go ahead. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, and I feel like watching it again this time, I sort of understood the, I guess, the need for the game a little bit more. I still don't understand a lot about Texas Hold'em because I did not read that book you read. 
but I just, I don't know, it, it just feels very classic Bond, you know, the, the whole uh, concept of them playing this game, and I, I like the way that they build tension even just when they're playing it, and then the way that they're able to fit in all these scenes where he has to leave the game and come back um, are just great scenes. Well, what I appreciated watching the game part is that after reading the book, they followed actual like poker rules. Like, oh, really? You know, like their cards, ne- like their cards never come off the table. Like when they're looking at the two cards in their hand, you notice that they always make sure that one end always stays touching the table. You're actually not allowed to pick your cards off the table. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, cool. And except for and except for Lashifra, Felix, and Bond. All the other players at the table are actual professional poker players. Oh, really? That's that's really cool. Yeah, they, they, they cast actual international poker players to play the other players at the table. So they're they're playing poker the way people play poker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I accidentally breezed over Vesper's entrance, though. Oh, <laughs> I'll I keep my eye. I really like that. I really like the scene with her with the opening. When she explains that she is the money. <laughs> Every penny of it. Yeah. And then my favorite, and then my other favorite line is, and I will keep my eye on our government's money and off of your perfectly formed ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it, I, I really like the way they set up the, the, uh, I, I guess like relationship, the competition they have with each other and the way that they size each other up on that scene too. Oh yeah. Oh, and, and, uh, leading up to the poker game, that's where the other cameo was, uh, the oh, police, okay. The police chief that Mathis has arrested oh. is actually Michael G. Wilson, who is a producer of the film. He is married to Barbara Broccoli, who is another producer on the film. And her father, Albert Broccoli, was the – I mean, he's the guy we have to thank for there being a Bond film franchise. Oh, wow. Albert, Albert Broccoli was one of a two-man who started Eon Productions – which has, which to this day owns the film rights to the James Bond uh, character. So he's the son-in-law of the man who gave us James Bond movies. Oh wow, that's crazy! Didn't know that. That's awesome. Great Easter egg. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I also like the scene uh, before the the game begins when uh, Bond purchases that dress for her, like you know, just to annoy her partially. <laughs> you know, he's like, "This is what I need you to wear, and this is what you need to do. I'm in charge." And then she's like, here's your suit. <laughs> and I like that. And he's like, it's tailored. And it I don't know. It's just cute how uh, they're both so irritated, but just so charmed and so impressed. <laughs> oh, like it's, 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 it's so like that. Well. I hate you so much. I love you kind mm-hmm, of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah. And, and that line you brought, it's tailored. I sized you up the moment I met. And he's kind of <laughs> like, well, I'm insulted, but also flattered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's... Well, I think he's also impressed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a Bond girl, you know, if I'm going to use that pejorative, that oh, yeah. is I mean, equal to Bond. Right, Like, right. she's not going to take his crap. Yeah. And I feel like he wants that. I mean, I feel like he really pushes boundaries with M, and she has to put a tracking device on him. It's like, I don't know, he's sort of acting out and hoping somebody will push back. Yes. <laughs> you know? I mean, because he's lonely. But you, you find out more about that in the other in the other movies. But I think that idea is planted here. Oh, absolutely. I also love the fact that at the poker at the very first poker game, when he's trying to be all nonchalant, he orders a Vesper Martini and he gives the exact recipe from the book. 
Yeah, like, yeah, I read that, and then he's like, "Oh, this is pretty good." <laughs> yeah, yes. I know. And, and just and just for our listeners, if you don't know what a Vesper Martini is, oh, it I is did after this movie. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I still have never had one. I oh really? To, yeah, yeah we went. We went. We were like, okay, we're gonna. Well, it started with because. Uh, well, it probably wasn't this movie. Actually, it's probably one of the more recent ones. We ordered one. We're like, well, let's try it. I'm not like a big martini drinker or anything, but you know, we wanted to try it. So we ordered it. I think we were at Alamo and it was like $15. I mean, it's, you know, the ingredients are good. So it's expensive. And we were like, uh, let's try to make this at home. <laughs> and so we bought like dry vermouth and, you know, all the ingredients, but we had to kind of fudge on some of them because, you know, it's an old recipe. And so some of the ingredients are not super easy or, you know, very accessible. No, yeah, the the recipe he gives in the movie is three measures of Gordon's, one measure of vodka, half a measure of Kinalalette, uh, shake over ice and serve with a thin slice of lemon peel. Yeah, we kind of just like got as close as we could. I think we like Googled like, well, what what can we get? <laughs> yeah, the Kinalalette is the part that makes it really hard to make an yeah. actual Vesper Martini. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, OK, I see why these were fifteen dollars. Um, oh, Absolutely. Yeah, and I think we both each had like one, but it still made like our our evening at the theater really expensive because that was like an extra thirty dollars to see. Like we walked out of there, and I said we just paid like eighty dollars to see James Bond. Oh, by the way, just so you can understand Texas Hold'em, do you understand how to play like five card draw? Like, do you know not that? Not really. Uh, <laughs> I am not. Okay. I'm not really uh, much of a gamer in most things. So. Okay. Well. All you have to understand is that it's like, you know, you have five cards and you're trying to get the best hand. Yeah. The only difference in Texas Hold'em is that you're given two cards mm -hmm. and then there's a and then there's that community of like four cards in the middle that everyone gets to play. And so instead of having to get five cards in your own hand, you get two cards and you're hoping that the community cards allows you to make the best five card hand possible. Well, four of the cards everyone gets to play off of. I see. Okay. That does help me understand that scene a little better. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, then, I've never you know. I've been much of a gambler. I mean, I, I, I like to go to Vegas and um, I do enjoy going to casinos, but I, I, I feel like I mostly go there for the atmosphere or something. I don't know. I, I'm not really a gambler, so I never really got into any of the games. I'm too intimidated since I don't know most of them to even play. Oh, see, so. see, it was like movies like Maverick. With with Mel Gibson and Jodie Foster, that made me go. I need to know how card games work because I <laughs> they just make it so appealing. <laughs> I know. Um, of course, you know all the times of them like you know going out uh, in and out of the poker game. There's that brutal stairway fight. Yes, that, that's that, another one of my favorite scenes. We'll talk. We'll talk about it. Okay. 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 Um, so yeah. So I mean, well, I, see the ba the bad part about me talking about scenes in this movie is I just keep wanting to jump to the part that I like the most. <laughs> Go ahead, but, jump okay, to the okay. part you like the most. All right. So the the shower scene, which is probably I think my favorite scene in the movie, because and I wanted to ask how how do you how do you read that scene where she's traumatized and she's in the shower after she sees, you know, that he murders those two people and then he's still in like robot mode of like we just got to clean this up and you need to get back in there H how did you read that part like her reaction to it i i thought it was ptsd i, yeah, I thought I, I thought she was calling back to something else that happened and i also felt like he has been through some form of that himself and that's why he was so 
Like I didn't well, read it as him just being comforting. No, no. Yeah. I I think it's I think it's he respects her. Mm-hmm. I mean, his parents do. I mean, the, the backstory is his parents die in a climbing accident when he's a small child. Yeah. So I think there's a sense of, you know, it's it's kind of like kind of back to what we started, like in a Batman movie. You know, it's it's like Batman taking on Dick Grayson. It's like, wow. You just went through something like I did. Mm-hmm. I can I can help, right? And, and I think it's I think it's him letting her in emotionally yeah. by going, "Wow, this is how normal people react to what I do." Right, right. And I felt you know we know that she's an orphan too, and we don't know what her backstory is either. So right, she except except for what we later learn about her boyfriend. Sure, sure, yeah. And but he doesn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he knows that he. But he knows something's up because he recognizes the necklace. And I think it's just him going. I I this is my opportunity to be a human being again. Right, like, and it's sort of like he's hugging her, hugging himself. Yeah, that's kind of what I got from it too. Yeah, I it, do, it's, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, this movie is like all these opportunities for Bond to be a human being again. Mm-hmm. And the whole point is for him to learn at the end of the movie, you can't. Yeah, you, you can't have both. You can't have both. You can either be this badass or you can be a human being. And the realization at the end is I basically have to strip myself of all humanity, uh, of all humanity to become James Bond. Right. Yeah. And, the, and this is his test. And I think it's kind of like because this doesn't work out. That's why he makes that decision. I also loved, um, I read that initially she was supposed to be like naked in that shower scene, but it was actually Daniel Craig's idea to have her stay in her dress. Cause he was oh, like, fantastic. Yeah, because he was like, you know, if she's traumatized and running into the shower, I think the scene's just going to have more impact if she's still in her dress. And I, I do feel like just visually it's more extreme. You know, no, because obviously yeah. you would never climb in the shower with your clothes on. So it's like, I think that makes that scene have a much bigger impact. And I kind of, I mean, you're not really expecting it when it happens either. No. And, yeah. and, and, and her being naked would send the complete wrong message yeah, about like he's what like, that. Oh, you're in the shower. Yeah, exactly what yeah. I wanted. Yeah. It's like it, you know, you could still, I guess, make the scene work, but it just has bigger impact when it's a little more real. Right, because he walked in and he sees the the the, the tipped over broken wine glass. So obviously, first he tried drinking to cope, get over yeah. the to and cope. He drinks the whole movie. So. <gasps> oh, he I mean, chugs. I, yeah, he chugs. I mean, he definitely. I think you know, like you said, he he's you know separated emotionally, but you can they leave clues that he that he's coping. He's not just able to completely switch it off. Oh yeah. yeah, and it, he's he's dealing, yeah, yeah, a lot, and then th- that leads to this great moment that I don't think anyone was expecting, except for of course someone who read the book, which is <laughs> he loses, he gets his ass handed to him in the poker game, and yeah. like he's out. I mean, he gets fooled. Well, with- I was gonna say like I think that that's something unique about this movie too, and you know you're you're the Bond expert here, but. Um, I feel like in, in a lot of the other movies, I mean, he doesn't have, like, a big humiliating moment like that, right? Very, very rarely. Yeah. I mean, they they did it every once in a while, but it went against 
who the character was. Yeah, he's supposed and, oh, to be cool, always get the girl, win every time. I mean, that's that's what you like expect him to do. So when he loses, it's it's shocking. Right. Which actually that's that is that is what happens in the book because the legend is Ian Fleming based this on an incident where he supposedly like bested a Nazi agent in a card game, which most mm. people will tell you was complete <laughs> bull crap. Yeah. And it was Fleming trying to toot his own horn that if that actually even happened, it was somebody else who was playing and it wasn't sure, Fleming. Like he witnessed it maybe like he witnessed it, but then the, the, you know, the fish story turned into, it was him and then he just kind of created this ultimate fantasy version of it being Bond doing the, you know, the cleaning out the evil agent at the card table kind of deal. Yeah, yeah. And I like the moment, too, where um, where Vesper, you know, tries to get him to see that he is too obsessed with this game and that it's not he's not going to win it and that he's acting like what does she say? She's like you're acting not like a child, but I can't remember. Oh, uh, I think I she even calls him a petulant though? child. Okay, she does. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, because he, she says you're letting your, it was your ego, and in yeah. there. you only want to do it because your ego hurt. Because she, ha- she gets to make the call about whether to give him the five million dollars for the buyback, mm-hmm. and she's like, no, I don't trust you with with five because he already lost ten million. I don't mm-hmm. trust you with five million more. Um, so no, I'm not going to give you the money. Yeah, which is. Then great because that's when we get to meet Felix Leiter and he's like, "Hey, we're Americans. We'll we'll yeah. foot the bill." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that line. Does it look like we need the money? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that great way that in the bomb movies they always take little digs at Americans, they which do. I don't I don't mind I because don't because it's it's that fun like British intelligence versus American intelligence. Like there's always kind of that you know he even says we're family because the idea that we're cousins. And so mm-hmm. I just it was it was fun and Jeffrey Wright is just smug and smooth as heck and I just I really appreciate it. Yes. And then we have another probably one of my favorite scenes where he gets poisoned. Oh. That is such a great It's so intense. Scene. It's like even every time I watch it I know that he's going to be okay. <laughs> but why am I so worried? It, he just cuts it so close. Oh well, he he actually no, he actually loses. Yeah, if yeah. Vesper doesn't show up, she just to shows up and yeah, saves him. Saves him. No, he's a dead man because he couldn't get the defibrillator to work. No, because it was unplugged. Like he forgot to plug in that little uh, yeah he, wire. The connect. Uh, yeah, the mm-hmm. the oh, I don't know what the contact. He forgot yeah. to connect the contact, and so it wasn't sending electricity. And I just I just love that. And then I also love when he wakes up and he just kind of. It's like the most Bond looking he does is like, he's like he's like putting himself back together and he goes, <laughs> you're not going back in there, are you? Wouldn't dream of it. And then he just walks on in and sits down. And the Schieffer's like, what the died. hell? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's like, I'm not dead, though. <laughs> oh, man. And of course, then that, you know, he wins with a straight flush, mm-hmm. which, by the way, means it's all the numbers in a row and they're all the same suit. That's what a straight flush is. Mm-hmm. It, well, drop a little poker knowledge on you. <laughs> yeah, uh, I love how they start to they start to hint at the idea that Mathis might be the mole. Yeah, you know that that great misdirection, mm-hmm. even to the point that Vesper gets quote kidnapped. Yep, and that's when we get to that car chase we talked about where they ruined so many beautiful Aston Martin <laughs> BBSs. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and then that leads to the torture scene. Ugh, this scene is rough. Mm. It hurts. It hurts to watch. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit much. I mean, I don't understand how he recovers from that so quickly <laughs> in the movie. It seems like he recovers very quickly. But um, but yeah, it's, it's terrible. I think the only... When I say torture scene, I don't really like movies that have, you know, quote-unquote torture porn in them. So the amount of movies I'll watch with scenes like that are pretty small anyway. But um, it reminds me of the scene from... What's that movie called? I'll have to think about it. Uh, It's Dustin Hoffman. uh, Running Man. Have you seen that movie? Oh, yes. With the tooth. Yo, with Sir Lawrence Olivier as the dentist. Yes, I yes. mean the two thing is worse somehow, <laughs> but but um, but yeah. It's, well, it's I think, uh, well, personally, being a man, I find <laughs> this one kind of hard because it's like sure. okay. Um, Le Chiffre has a great line, which I think is a very meta line. He says, "I never understood these elaborate tortures," which I think is a dig at old yes, Bond movies. Yeah, definitely. It's like because he's like, I can use a rope and I can break you. Mm-hmm. with a rope i don't need a chainsaw or a laser or whatever <laughs> it's been in these past movies yeah but of yeah, course then, but then it leads to one of my favorite exchanges with bond just being bond daniel craig bond um i've got a little itch down there yeah do you mind <laughs> and then he like hits it with a rope and he's like to the right to the right and he's like <laughs> totally like just trying to not pass out Mm -hmm. and then he just starts laughing uncontrollably like he's losing his mind he has the great line now the whole world will know you died scratching my balls yeah (laughs) just like oh my god and you could just see the going i got i got nothing yeah it's like it doesn't work he's too trained there's no way but and and it does feel like towards the end that he has the upper hand and then you hear those gunshots that you assume uh, I thought I I kind of assumed his girlfriend was being killed. Okay. Yeah, but but you know instead, Mister White comes in and kills Lashifre. Yeah, and in the books they explain that uh, that it was a it was a Russian agent who comes in and oh, he actually okay. and, and and but for the same reason he's killing Lashifre because he lost the money like right. that yeah. that played out the same. The only difference in the book is that he actually stops to tell Bond the only reason I'm not killing you is because I didn't have orders to. Mm. But I think they intentionally leave it vague because of what happens later, right? Right. Well, yeah. the movie continues on in the story longer than the book does. Oh, okay. So I so they needed to leave it vague. They yeah. needed to leave it vague there. And but I like it. I like the idea that Bond doesn't even kill the Bond villain. His yeah. own his own people kill him. Yeah, well, because he's new too, right? Like, yes, he didn't have the upper hand in that situation at all. <laughs> no, because mm-hmm. this is kind of where the book ends. Oh. Is it is in this uh, sort of they they're in the hospital. He's there for a while. So I when you're like you, you felt like he recovered quickly. I like to think he's probably there for at least a month or two. Okay, you yeah, know. I say probably just didn't want to spend a lot of time uh, the movie. You know, him in the hospital. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and so the idea that, you know, he does have to recover, you know, he got beat the crap up Mm -hmm. and I appreciated that about the film. And then the film then launches into like its last little set piece, which like I said, is completely invented for the movie. 
because the book pretty much wraps up right about this point. But she still betrays him, right, in the book? Right. Well, in the book, what happens is that they go, you know, he considers quitting MI6. Uh-huh. He, they go on a, they don't go to Italy. They got to, they kind of go to like the French Riviera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that one-eyed, uh, that one-eyed agent who yeah. you see in Venice, she sees him. And so she kind of starts to get gaslighted by the idea uh. that this agent is following them. And she actually, he actually, Bond comes home, uh, comes back to the hotel room one day and she commits suicide. Oh, and okay. Because she feels like she can't take it anymore. Like they're never going to get away. She does feel guilty for actually being a double agent mm-hmm. uh, for the Soviet Union in the book. And then she leaves him a letter and the letter explains everything. I like this ending a little bit better then because I I like the way, I mean, they really make her, I, I feel like there's a temptation to make her, I mean, even if she killed herself. I feel like it could come across that she's still, like, totally evil. I don't know. You know what I mean? Because, but I feel like the way that they give her that moment where she's choosing under the water seems more heroic to me, I guess. Oh, absolutely. And so, the fact that she left the cell phone knowing that she would, fo- knowing that he would follow her. Like, yeah. she wanted him to find out. Mm-hmm. She wanted him to come in and, quote, save the day and stop her giving the money to, you know, Spectre. I also did thought, I mean, I, this is a silly nitpick, but I was like, if they're going to like, you know, be incognito, I'm not sure being in Venice is the best idea. (laughs) But I mean, for the the purposes of the story, it makes sense. Exactly. No, so I agree (laughs) with you. I feel like for, especially for a modern audience, but just for the character arc. Yes. I, I think her, she has agency at the end of the movie that she does she she comes off a, she comes off more like a victim in the book where she has agency more in the film yeah and i don't mean to to make any comments uh that if you commit suicide that's cowardly or anything like that I d- definitely don't mean it that way but i think the just her being so active whereas if if he comes back and she's gone um, passed away, you, you don't see that struggle, you know? So I guess oh. that's what I mean, yeah. Well, and you get a completely different picture from the book because you, you know that line he says, and, and since you put the explicit uh, on uh, on the podcast, I can say this, yeah. but in the movie when he's talking to M and he's and Bond's kind of shutting down and she's like, are you all right? He said, I'm fine. The bitch is dead. Yeah. That's the last line of the book. Oh, Wow. Yeah, the the final send, uh, you know, like M is asking about Bond, you know, how are you, how are you, you know, and the last sentence of the book is him calling back to MI6 saying the bitch is dead now. Yeah. And that's how the book ends. Well, well, I mean, that that is a good way to end it in that, you know, you, it's kind of like he's really burying that part of himself. Like, I can understand why that would be the last line. Oh yeah, you know, because it's like even even if you did that in this movie, um, since she sort of is a metaphor for him and the last human parts of himself, and then if he's able to turn around and be that cold, that's like saying I've shut that off completely. But well, it is it, nice to give her. Oh, go ahead, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was just. It, it is nice to give her that M that moment. I mean, because she could have just been like, yeah. Exactly. She's dead because it serves her more 
for him to have complete wrapped up closure and be distanced from that girl. But M is very intuitive and picking up on his pain. And she has a pretty, I think, merciful moment explaining to him how she actually feels about that girl's death. Right. I mean, that's but very then, nice of her. <laughs> but then she also has the moment of, you know, when she suggests that Mathis should be left off the hook. And he's like, nope, we don't know that for certain. And then, yeah. and then she's like, you don't trust anyone. Lesson learned. So even M gets kind of that cold moment of, good. Now you yeah. know what it's like to be an agent. Yeah. Now go do your job. It's yeah. like they both have a moment of humanity and then they're shutting it back off. Yes. Yeah. Which then leads into that epic final scene that only lasts for scene. like, oh God. <laughs> so okay. Because so it could have ended and, there. Like I, it could have just ended with that. Oh, but, but the way it ends where you see Mr. White, he calls the number, you know, Bond's going after him because mm-hmm. he saw the, cause, cause, cause Vesper left him the phone number for Mr. Yep. White. And then it's one of those things that this is what happened to me as I was watching the movie for the first time in Nashville. He shoots him in the kneecap. He comes dragging as he's dragging himself. You finally hear the horns, bottom. And I'm sitting there in the theater after two and a half hours going, <laughs> I've never heard the Bond theme this whole movie. Like, you didn't realize the Bond theme had never played. Yeah, because you're so wrapped up in the story. You're so wrapped up in the story, and they used You Know My Name so well as Mm -hmm. kind of a pseudo-Bond theme that you're sitting there going, oh, crap. (laughs) It's about to happen. And then when he, you know, because the last thing he says, Mr. White says on the phone before Bond caps him is he says, who is this? And then he drops. And then you see Daniel Craig in a nice three piece suit with a big ass gun. And another thing that's <laughs> happening is there's that- the uh, 10 or 11 year old in you like getting their moment. <laughs> yes, you better believe it. And and not only do you realize that that moment that you've never heard the Bond theme the entire movie as he stands there, you realize He's never said the line the entire movie. Oh, yeah. And so the last line of the movie is, my name is Bond, James Bond. And then the Bond theme just kicks the hell out of Dodge and starts playing through the closing credits. And you're sitting here going, this is the greatest Bond movie ever. Yeah. And and also... The, the setup of him killing White, I think, is a lot cleaner than most of his kills in the movie. So I, I also feel like that's a part of his evolution, right? Of, you know, he's all, he's all cleaned up. Like you said, he looks like Bond. He has the gun. And he's being maybe a little more strategic than he was exactly. in the movie. Yeah, so he's really, really coming into 007. I will say this because the track for the end credits on the soundtrack album was called My Name is Bond, James Bond. Like, that's the name of the track. And this arrangement by David Arnold of the James Bond theme is my hands-down favorite arrangement ever of the theme. Like, if I want to listen to the James Bond theme, I go to the Casino Royale soundtrack and I play this version. Awesome. And that's a movie. That's the movie. 
That's um, the movie. But what, okay, I guess this is a silly question for you. <laughs> but what keeps you coming back to this this one in particular? Really, I, I'm going to be honest, there's a giant nostalgia factor. Mm-hmm. Because, as I said, I have such vivid memories of 2006. Like, this movie meant so much to me at that time. You know, being with my best friend, uh, the trip to Nashville, the reading all the novels because this movie inspired me to read all the novels. You know, it, 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 there's just so much around it that like, besides the fact that the movie is a kick-ass movie, mm-hmm. I just, there's so much in my person, like it's such a specific period of time in my life that it's always going to be special. I even had the movie poster for this movie hanging in my bedroom up to the day that my wa- uh, my wife moved in, like <laughs> it took my wife, uh, my, it took me getting married and my wife moving in for this movie poster to get off my bedroom wall. <laughs> well, you can always rebuy it and put it, you know, in your uh, in your basement, right? <laughs> uh, it, it might happen. You never know. <laughs> but I think that's it. And it's it's such a it's such a wonderful adaptation of the novel. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, I, how many times through this podcast have I said, well, this is just like in the book. I mean, I felt yeah. like it was stupid, but they did such a great job of like – it had been so many decades since one of these movies was actually based on one of the books. Like right. they eventually ran out of books to use. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they got the rights back to finally do this one was fantastic. And that's a whole story on its own on right. the special features about just getting the rights back to this one novel. Yeah. And and I mean, having that, that background that you have, it does make me see the movie in a different light because I haven't read the book. So I, I didn't know it was that close. And there's just a lot of Bond trivia that I don't know going in. So yeah, I can completely see how that's a, a completely different experience if you are a big Bond fan. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> I guess for me, like I said, this sort of it, it, it was a game changer for me. It made me a lot more interested in the character. Um, I think when I, when I, you know, you talk about being a car guy, I think for me, the locations are what historically bring me back to Bond films. I love all the different places he travels to. I love the, um, you know, this movie has a lot of really pretty shots of where they're at. You know, it, it's in the movie starts in Prague, which is actually one of my favorite cities that I've ever visited. Um, it's so beautiful. And it's just it's awesome. If you ever get a chance to go, it is it is great. And um, because they have the and then because they have the ability with such an international um, presence to yeah. film all of this on location. Right, right. Oh, it's just awesome. I mean, it's like I mean, that's that, like I said, that's like almost 50 percent of why I want to watch the movie. Um, and so that's what I like about it. And then also just the way that Daniel Craig really humanized this character. I mean, we talked about that over and over. Um, I'm really happy to hear that that is from the books and it makes me a lot more interested to read them, but that's, that's my main draw. I mean, he is, he is probably my, the other 50% is just him, you know? And also that it's just a good movie. Oh, I mean, it's even such if a it good movie. Somehow wasn't about James Bond. Like it's just a great story and uh, it all wraps up. There's no, extraneous characters like i said there's no silly gadgets it's um and actually i don't want to hate on gadgets too much because i i like that but there's just nothing 
There's no like extra bells and whistles really in this movie, but it's so good. It's such a great introduction to the character. And so for someone like me that doesn't have all that history um, in this, seeing it when I saw it for the first time, you know, that really pulled me into it. So I think, I think it works really well on that level too. Um, what would you say to someone that's never seen this movie before? Give it a shot. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like who I, are you? Can <laughs> I want to meet this person that's never seen this? Like, I, I just don't. I, I feel like it's just such a big part. I mean, Bond has kind of always been, uh, like you said, for how many years is it now? Uh, wow, 1962 for the movies, 1954 for the books. Yeah, that's how long this character's been around, right? And it's like he hasn't really left the pop culture consciousness. But at the same time, I feel like you were saying earlier, Bond really kind of saved the franchise, kind of revitalized it. So I, it's hard to picture recommending this to someone that hasn't seen it, <laughs> you know? Um, at least uh, right I, can now. Tell you, I can tell you one person who hasn't seen it, Brent. He what? has not seen it. Yeah, I know. That's Just, crazy. I know. But no, he hasn't seen it. But no, I would say... If you like action movies, mm-hmm. of course see this movie. Sure. If you if you like James Bond movies, why haven't you seen this movie? Or I think the point you made, if you've been kind of like, ah, James Bond's kind of cheesy, it's 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 cliche. It's like, no, go watch this movie. This is what a James Bond movie looks like when you strip out the cheese. Like yeah. when you want to make just a human drama that just happens to have james bond in it mm-hmm. you get casino royale right right yeah no i completely agree well oh go ahead go ahead You're about to um say i have to i i think i think we owe it to our listeners mm-hmm. to um i have to say it is actually not my favorite james bond movie okay um that has to be skyfall really I love- oh i didn't know that I love Skyfall. Okay. I, I left Skyfall going, that was a damn fine movie. Uh, this was my favorite James Bond movie until Skyfall. Yeah. And so my top three are Skyfall, Casino Royale, and From Russia with Love. Yeah, well, I, I think I think you should come back then. Okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, we've... you can pick another movie if you want, but I'm just saying, if you do pick that movie, it's yours. I feel like because what was what was the name of your friend again who does all the Indiana Jones movies? Oh, Kara, yeah. If if Kara can come back for a trilogy, I can come back for another Craig Bond film. That's all I gotta say. Yeah, she kind of had the monopoly on uh on Indiana Jones and Alien, the Alien franchise. She likes that too, but um, but yeah, you can you can have you can have the Bond franchise then. Oh, fantastic. I will, I will take that up. <laughs> okay. this, maybe this is how I get you to finally watch From Russia with Love. Yeah, it, 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 that would definitely do it. Um, did you want to go ahead and, and plug your uh, your podcast, too? We didn't talk about that. Oh, that's fine. We're talking about Bond. But yes, <laughs> if, if you want to hear me talk about my other obsession, which is DC Comics and the DC films and Batman, Superman, and all that, uh, you can tune in and listen to the Suicide Squadcast. We're a weekly news and review show. Um, we're also part of a network, the Suicide Squadcast Network. Uh, you can listen to a, a host talk about TV, comic books, random geek culture. Um, we try to hit we try to hit all the points. So, and you can follow me uh, on Twitter at scottdc27. Uh, you can send your hate mail there if you think I'm crazy for thinking Daniel Craig is a better Bond than Connery. I. Un- <laughs> I fully understand why you'd hate me for it, and I don't care. <laughs> so, 
Yeah. Well, I, I will say my last thought on James Bond is I think out of the ones that I've seen on screen, and like I said, I haven't seen every Bond, but if I compare, you know, Pierce Brosnan and Roger Moore, I mean, I easily think that, uh, that Sean Connery is way above that. <laughs> and I even feel like he's, even though he does do that suave playboy Bond, he's definitely the tougher one to me out, out of those three. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so absolutely. I feel like he's closer. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I understand the nostalgia of him being. I mean, he's considered the best Bond, but, um, but yeah. So I'll, I'll back you. Was the you first? Up. Yeah, he was the first. Exactly. Um, well, thank you so much for coming back. Like I said, I really, really appreciated having you on here. I, you, you know, I'm a huge fan of your show, and uh, I tweet. I aggressively tweet you often. So thank you. <laughs> it, 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 um, it, ditto, ditto. It, it's, yeah. it's reciprocated. I have to say, love your show too. I also got a little fact that we're talking about a movie for about as long as the runtime of a movie. Yep, right. yep, yep. I'm, I'm breaking, uh, breaking uh, records here. <laughs> I think, like I said, I did do a movie the other day that was only 80 minutes, and we talked about it for two and a half hours. But yeah, this is this is getting pretty close. It would be challenging to do this equivalent of that for this film, but then we'd be here to like one or two in the morning so and i have to go to work tomorrow <laughs> i mm -hmm. do too so i gotta go to i gotta go to sleep but uh yeah thanks for coming back and we'll see you back next time bye guys bye hey guys thanks so much for listening it was awesome having scott back um love discussing bond with him and if you love all things dc you will really enjoy his podcast it's called the suicide squad cast so give that a listen uh if you guys have any feedback about this episode or any others please feel free to reach out to me on twitter under aya lisa cosplay or on instagram under aya and as a nancy ami lisa or in our closed Facebook group called I Love That Movie. The group is closed, but if you send me a request, I'll add you. It's just a safe space to talk about movies that you love with other people judgment-free. The only rule I have is keep it positive. So if you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate the show. If you leave a positive review on iTunes, you will be entered to win a $20 gift card to a movie theater chain of your choice. Right now we're at 13 reviews, and I will draw a random name once we get to 15. Everybody loves free money, and it's my way of giving back to you guys for supporting me. So thank you so, so much. Uh, I look forward to hearing from you guys again. Bye.